Michelle was last year's winner of the Alan Martin Research Scholarship. Um, I'd also like to say about Michelle that she worked at Royal Melbourne Hospital in an acute and rehab cancer group for three years after graduating in 2007. And from there, she's been working at Epworth Hospital since 2011. Uh, currently, she's a grade three physio, team leader for the ABI Neural Inpatient Rehabilitation Service at Epworth. Um, she's been working in clinical research since 2012, um, where she worked as a trial manager and treating therapist setting up a randomized control trial at Epworth in a collaboration on another, a number of smaller other research projects. She then developed her own project ideas and enrolled in a Masters of Philosophy in August 2014. And as often happens, these things are always bigger than Ben Hur. <laughs> so it's now ended up to be a part-time PhD. Uh, she's currently enrolled at University on the Sunshine Coast and dedicates two days a week to research and three days to clinical work. Uh, please um, invite Michelle to speak. Thanks, guys. Um, so before I begin my talk, I just wanted to acknowledge Alan Martin, for whom the scholarship that I received um, was in honour of. Um, and so most of you know who've been involved in the beer and know that he was instrumental in setting up the Victorian Brain Injury Recovery Association and that he was really passionate about research to improve our clinical practice and knowledge and therefore improve the care of people with brain injury. So I'm honoured to stand in um, and sort of follow on in his legacy and present to you for the Summer Foundation Breakfast Club series about my research. So, yep. Uh, we did worry that it was going to have that. What? Uh, uh. There we go, <laughs> back. So my project is developing a gold standard ecologically valid assessment um, of associated reactions in people with acquired brain injury. So just to um, outline my talk today. So first I'll define associated reactions. I'll talk about some of the issues in the field. Um, discuss my systematic review as a bit of a background for the topic. Uh, discuss the project outline and aims, the methods that we've included in the project to assess associated reactions, the importance of then determining what the contributing impairments are, the testing timeframes and procedures, the achievements thus far, particularly with respect to this scholarship, the overall expected outcomes of my project, and then if anyone is still awake, then there'll be some time for some questions. So what is an associated reaction? Associated reactions are an effort-dependent limb movement. It's unwanted and it occurs following brain damage where there might be sensory motor dysfunction or insufficient postural control. So that when a stimulus is applied that goes beyond the individual's level of inhibitory or modulatory control, it results in intermittent or sustained involuntary heterogeneous muscle activation with abnormal limb posturing. And it's most visible in the hemiplegic upper limb. Now I know that definition is a real mouthful, but the importance is that it enca encapsulates the whole phenomenon. And so I guess the key things to take away from that is that it's unwanted, it's undesirable, no one wants an associated reaction, that it's effort dependent, and so that effort might be different for different of our patients. So for example, for one person, it might just be rising from sitting is enough of an effortful task to elicit the associated reactions. Whereas in another person, it might be running or going up and down stairs or something that's a lot more, a lot more challenging. And basically it causes involuntary activation of the arm muscles and causes really awkward, uncomfortable upper limb movement patterns. Yeah. 
So really there is no single standardised definition of the term associated reactions and this is something that's been um, identified in the literature over 20 years ago and in that time it's largely been unchanged. And so Mary Lynch Ellington, who's a Bobath expert, um, had written an editorial back in 1998 and they were sort of toing and froing with Roberta Shepherd and Stephen Stephenson and they really highlighted these issues. And over the last 20 years unfortunately it hasn't sort of evolved too far. And so I realised when I sort of started off researching this area, I had to try and really sift through and work out what are we actually talking about here when we talk about associated reactions. And so there are a number of terms that are used interchangeably or overlap when we refer to associated reactions, which makes it really difficult to sort of follow where it's all heading. So I guess motor overflow is this umbrella term. It's the umbrella term that talks about unintended muscle activity that co-occurs with voluntary movement. So it's sort of a generic term. If we look at mirror movement and imitative synkinesis, this is distinct from associated reactions. This is something that's part of normal development, so you'll see it in paediatrics as they're sort of trying to gain control of voluntary movement. And it also recurs in some pathological conditions like Huntington's, cerebral palsy, Parkinson's disease and in stroke. But what the mirror movement means is exactly that. So someone elicits, they perform an activity with their one hand, um, so their good side, and then it's mostly seen in the distal muscles of the upper limb. And then it'll elicit involuntarily the exact same movement on the other side. So a perfect example, if someone's gripping onto something really hard, their other hand, so their affected hand, will grip at the same time as it. And that's a mirror movement. Whereas an associated movement, again, is a normal part of development. So until the first decade of life, you'll see children who exhibit associated movements. And it's also a normal response in healthy people to stress or to effort. So we all know that person who sticks their tongue out the side of their mouth when they're trying really hard at something. That's an associated movement. And so we're talking about the pathological form of an associated movement, which is an associated reaction. The effort-dependent activity in their upper limb muscles when they're inducing effort at a site remote from that that's sort of coming into the, um, into the associated reaction. So it might be their legs, it might be their other arm, it could be any part of their body and their reaction is that involuntary upper limb movement pattern. Um, global synkinesis is just a French term that basically is synonymous with associated reactions. So I just thought I'd show a few videos of associated reactions to show how varied the patterning can be between different people of differing abilities. And, you know, by virtue of its definition, it's, it's dynamic and it's unintentional and it's associated with movement and effort. Um, and so it can happen in people with really good physical function and people with poor physical function. It can happen in people with really good selective upper limb movement motor control and others who don't have any voluntary movement of their upper limb. So this is one of our patients who had a severe traumatic brain injury. And you can see as she rises from sitting into standing, her arm, her left arm goes into a really internally rotated, flexed and abducted position. Her elbow flexes and her wrist flexes into a really awkward posture. As she steadies into standing, it sort of drops a little bit, but it still maintains in a really uncomfortable position. So now if we compare it to this young girl, for her the effortful task is descending the stairs. And as she descends the stairs, her arm abducts, it externally rotates, it flexes at the, at the elbow and extends it to the wrist in a kind of Cleopatra-like positioning. So you can imagine for this young girl how confronting that is whenever she walks out and about and her arm sort of flings out to the side there. 
And then look at this young boy as he walks faster and faster. You can see his arm goes into a really floppy, weird, internally rotated position, flopping in and out. Um, and that's something that he's really, really self-conscious of. And then this man you can see here, his is more of a sort of elbow flexion pattern and as he walks, with every step, his elbow oscillates into a little bit more flexion. So you can see there are four very different patterns of associated reactions and for each of these people, this is equally as disabling. So there's large variability in the literature about how prevalent associated reactions are. In stroke, it sort of ranges from about 28 to sort of 88% and there's no actual report in traumatic brain injury. And perhaps this reflects those issues with terminology and assessment procedures. But it really can have a vast impact on the functional abilities and quality of life of people with brain injury. It can lead to contractures of their arm, entrenched aberrant movement patterns, limited upper limb function, particularly when they're up standing and walking and sort of evoking that effort. It can increase the energy requirements of walking, impair the dynamic balance, and then there might be a risk of falling. And there's obvious aesthetic implications. So this visibly awkward upper limb posture, um, you know, it can really make people very self-conscious and really adds to that stigma of disability. And there was an article by Rehead and colleagues that looked at a group of adolescents with cerebral palsy. And interestingly, they found that these people's upper limb or abnormal movement patterns in their arm were most strongly correlated with their self-esteem and their sense of coherence. And that was more so than their gait or walking and leg abnormalities. And I think this is equally applicable in our adults with brain injury. And so, you know, we think about how prevalent depression is post-stroke and TBI, and we all know the impact the body image has on depression um, and self-esteem. And then there's also the issues of trying to re reintegrate these people back into the community. And so, you know, reducing the associated reactions that occur following, you know, during functional activities following brain injury is often a really big focus of our practice. So there are a number of problems in the field of associated reactions. And the first up is that there's no consensus over what the contributing impairments are. So we know associated reactions happen after an upper motor neuron lesion. But we don't really know, is it the positive features or the negative features that cause it? Is it a focal upper limb problem? Is it more global neurological deficits? Or is it even psychological problems that cause this? And so, you know, the varied contributing factors are anything from spasticity, hypertonicity, reduced motor control and weakness, and that's of their arm or of their leg. It's of their trunk instability, poor gait quality, anxiety, or fear of falling. And so, you know, it's really complicated in a severe and complex movement disorder that our patients often, often present with to try and decipher what the contributing factors are. But if we want to have targeted and cost-effective interventions, we need to know what the contributing impairments are. So the next issue is the diverse treatment strategies. So because we don't really know what the contributing factors are, it means there's lots and lots of different interventions that aren't really supported by evidence. So a good example of this is that many clinicians may use botulinum neurotoxin as a treatment modality of choice for associated reactions. Whereas other clinicians might go, well, maybe that's not the best treatment if we haven't got uh, confirmatory evidence for its use. You know, other things, clinicians might focus on that upper limb problem and sort of do lots of upper limb treatment, whereas others might think of core stability and trunk to try and reduce it or just worry about their leg. Um, and so I guess, you know, this means that 
we, if we don't know what the contributing factors are, we don't know what the treatment, the best treatment is, and then we're putting lots and lots of money into, you know, medications or treatment, and, you know, really our efforts may be a little bit futile and we might get suboptimal outcomes for our patients if we don't have that evidence to support what we're actually doing and why. And then I talked about those inconsistencies with terminology, which just makes communication about this issue really challenging. You know, it makes research challenging. And I mean, as clinicians, we all need to know that we're talking about the same thing. And lastly, there is no gold standard clinical assessment tool to assess the occurrence of associated reactions and then grade the severity. So I just thought these videos would be good to kind of highlight some of the issues with the assessment of associated reactions. So, you know, anecdotally assessment of associated reactions commonly happens at the bedside. Associated reactions can be really poorly distinguished from spasticity in the arm. They're often assessed using the Tardieu spasticity measure. And we know that the modified Tardieu scale assesses the velocity dependent stretch reflex in a muscle. So I just thought I'd show this video of true elbow flexor spasticity. So you can see there the V1, the person going all the way out into their passive range of movement. And then with fast movement, you can see a clear catch in the muscle. So as we go fast here, that is true elbow flexor spasticity, okay? So whereas the joint is moved through a fast, at a fast speed, you can then see the catch in the muscle. So now if we compare it to this young girl. So if we look at her upper limb active motor control while she's lying on the bed, it's a little bit shaky on the top, but she's got reasonable anti-gravity muscle control. And then if we look at her hand, you can see it's pretty floppy and relaxed. There's no real evidence of tone through her fingers and her wrist. And same with her elbow. So really easily, easily moved around with no evidence of spasticity. And now if we look at her up and moving about, we see a very different picture. So she's bounding a precursor to learning to run. And as she does this, you can see her arm abducts and extends. It flexes at the elbow into sort of a splayed wing type position. And you can see that even more clearly from behind. It's in a really uncomfortable, awkward position. So you can see how very different that picture is of this young girl when she's up and moving about compared to when she's lying on the bed. And I guess that really highlights the problem with us assessing people by the bedside, making you know, uh, decisions about interventions without seeing what's happening in everyday real life functional situations. So my systematic review was the aim was to try and find a really good assessment method in the literature that I could then use to assess my patients with associated reactions and then work out what the main impairments are. Well, no such luck. <laughs> so this was the publication in Brain Injury last year. So the aim of the study was to identify the various methods used in the literature to assess associated reactions in people with brain injury, to determine their clinometric properties and assess their clinical utility. So first stage was identifying the methods and you can see the inclusion and exclusion criteria. Basically it was adults with an acquired brain injury who had an associated reaction and we excluded children or the presence of mirror movements because we defined it as a distinct phenomenon. And then stage two was then to look at their clinometric properties and their clinical utility. 
So there's a bit of a debate about what is clinometrics and what is psychometrics and essentially they are the same thing, they cover the same thing. So clinometrics looks at the reliability, the validity and the responsiveness but it also takes into consideration the clinical utility, so the clinical application of that tool. So reliability, you know, I think most of you probably know this, is that when I use a measure and I test it today and I test it tomorrow, I don't expect the patient to have changed and I'm going to get similar scores. Or if myself and another clinician use the same tool at the same time, that we get consistent results. And validity, is it measuring the construct that we're asking it to? So in this case, is it measuring associated reactions? And then is it ecologically valid? So this was a term that was used to try and um, define whether a tool reflects an everyday real life occurrence or whether it just sort of is a bit of a clinical phenomenon. And so in the context of associated reactions, we're talking about does it reflect functional mobility when people up and moving about or is it just sort of that passive bedside assessment that doesn't really reflect what's going on in real life? And responsiveness, if I assess someone today and I assess them in three months' time, will it be able to detect change in that patient? And then clinical utility is that judgement about how acceptable it is to be used in a clinical setting in terms of cost and portability and feasibility and training and that sort of thing. So we did a systematic search of 10 databases. We did the clinometric rating by Turwee and colleagues. And then we gave the clinical utility a rating according to the system by Tyson and Connell. And that looked at the equipment's time, cost, training, portability, and um, yeah. So then this is my flowchart of study selection. So I won't go through all of that. Basically, I started off with 1,747 articles. Fortunately, I managed to narrow it down to about 18 articles that were included in the review. So overall, there were 13 observational studies included, six of which were case control studies, two RCTs and three pre and post test case control series. The participants overall across the studies were predominantly middle-aged adults and generally chronic in terms of their time post-injury and male. 89% of them were stroke. There was one study that looked at traumatic brain injury and one that had a mixed neurological cohort that had stroke TBI and one neuro-oncology subject. So these were the various methods that we identified in the literature that were used to assess associated reactions. So 11 studies used surface electromyography, 5 used standard goniometry, 1 used electrogoniometry, 5 used dynamometry or load cells, 2 used a subjective clinician rating form and 2 used a subjective patient rating form. So surface electromyography basically measures the muscle activity at a physiological level. You can see here they're quite cumbersome laboratory-based systems and 11 of the studies used surface electromyography. Now basically they got the person to sit and perform a maximal contraction on their intact upper limb and then measured what happened in their hemiplegic upper limb. So that effortful task was a sitting position and they got them to squeeze really hard with their good side. Standard goniometry was used in five studies. So they basically strapped a goniometer onto someone's arm. They got, four of the studies were dynamic. They got the person to stand up from sitting or stand on one leg or walk and then measure the change in the elbow range of motion. So obviously only at the elbow and only a single plane of movement. One study looked at electrogoniometry, was also a stationary seated test. Five studies looked at dynamometry or load cells. So again, they were all stationary seated testing positions. They got the person to perform that max contraction and then measured the torque produced by the hemiplegic arm associated reaction. So this is the um, associated reaction rating scale. 
by McFarlane and colleagues that some of you may recognise. And this is a subjective rating scale that looks at the extent of the number of joints implicated in the associated reaction during a dynamic task of sit to stand. There was also another clinician rating form that got the person to lie, lie down, perform a max contraction, and the clinician had to nominate the number of joints implicated. Two studies used patient rating forms where they got the patients to nominate the activities of daily living that they felt provoked their associated reaction and then to rate how bad they thought it was. And that could be autonomic, so things like yawning, coughing, sneezing, or it could be dynamic or stationary. So overall, the Cosman checklist is sort of our gold standard, I guess, in terms of evaluating clinometric properties and statistical outcomes, and we couldn't use it. <laughs> there wasn't enough data on any of these clinometric criteria or the um, statistical outcomes. Um, my second stage searches didn't actually identify any additional clinometric information, so there was no papers that specifically looked at the clinometrics of any of these methods. And I contacted all 18 authors. One of them got back to me with a little bit more information, but it wasn't published, so I couldn't include it. So I don't expect all of you to read this. <laughs> um, but basically, this is that rating system by Terwee and colleagues. So a plus meant that there was sufficient information and it met the criteria for clinometrics. A plus minus meant that it was a bit unclear. A minus meant that there was enough information, but it didn't fulfill the criteria. And a zero meant that there was no information at all. So I guess the key is across the board is that none of the methods actually fulfilled the criteria for clinometrics. You know, for reliability, face validity, responsiveness and floor and ceiling effects, there was very little information. There was nothing on, on criterion or concurrent validity at all or internal consistency. There was conflicting information for the stationary and the dynamic protocols for each of the surface EMG, the standard goniometry and the dynamometry. Um, in terms of ecological validity, the ones that I rated that did fulfil the criteria were the ones that had a dynamic testing protocol, so that wasn't that stationary seated test. And then the clinician rating form, so that associated reaction rating scale, was the only one that had a little bit of investigation into its clinometric properties, and so maybe it warrants some further evaluation. So in terms of clinical utility, so as you would expect, only 50% were actually feasible to be used in the clinical setting, and that was the goniometer or the clinician and patient rating forms. The other ones were laboratory-based, cumbersome, needed specialist training, lots of equipment, um, and so they weren't really feasible to be used clinically. So overall, we did identify a number of various methods that were used to assess associated reactions, but there was no gold standard, and there was very little reporting of the clinometrics. Um, majority used those stationary seated testing protocols as a max voluntary contraction to elicit the associated reaction and then measuring what occurred in the hemiplegic arm. Now, you know, there's benefits for that. It's a sort of safe, secure testing position and it may limit some of those confounding variables. But I guess if we're talking about it being an effort-dependent phenomenon and we're thinking about the functional occurrence of the associated reaction, it's unlikely to reflect what happens on a day-to-day -day basis for our patients particularly if we think that associated reactions are multifactorial and a lot of the factors that may contribute are dynamic, so postural control or fear of falling and anxiety, you know, perceptual issues, motor skill ability, all of those things we're not going to see when a patient is sitting um, in a testing position. And so, you know, that was where that whole concept of ecological validity came in, in that none of them, you know, the only ones that reflected ecological validity were the few that had dynamic protocols, but majority of them did not. 
So just some of the you know limitations, obviously the terminology, I had to really try and define what we were talking about here and only include studies that met with that working definition. We did use a mixed neurological cohort, but the focus was looking at the outcome measures and not on treatment effects. So that wouldn't have affected the yield or the scope. And we excluded paediatric or juvenile onset disorders because of that presence of that non-pathological associated movements. So I guess in terms of future research, this sort of got us thinking, you know, motion analysis systems are, you know, the criterion reference. It's the best available way that we have to analyse movements. It's really used, you know, as mainstream in uh, making surgical decisions and management decisions in the lower limb, particularly in cerebral palsy, and now more so and more frequently we're using it in adults. Um, and so, you know, this could be a really good way that we could try and quantify associated reactions in that dynamic ecologically valid context. So there's obvious issues in terms of cost and clinical utility, but if we can at least assess it, define it, then we can worry about clinically feasible ways of, of um, incorporating the assessment. So overall, there was no gold standard, robust objective functional measure that could evaluate associated reactions. There wasn't much clinic, clinometric information and they pretty much had uh, very poor clinical utility. Most of them didn't assess the whole arm, so they really just used the elbow. I mean, it's easy to assess as between two long levers, it's easy to see visually, but you know, we all know associated reactions happen a lot in the arm and the wrist and the hand, um, and so really these existing methods may not be able to assess associated reactions and tell us what the contributing factors are. So, I had a dream. <laughs> I wanted to find that cure. I wanted to say, what are the impairments for associated reactions? How can we treat it best? But that dream came crashing down by two words, outcome measure. So I realised that not only was it poorly defined, but there wasn't really a good measure that I could then use in my research to try and um, decipher what's going on in this field. And that led me down the pathway of the next uh, another four years of my life. Um, so we include adults with an upper motor neuron injury, so stroke, TBI or a stable neurosurgical condition. We have 60 participants of which 30 are chronic, so more than a year post-injury. 30 subacute, less than a year post-injury. And they have to have an associated reaction in their arm, in their hemiplegic arm during walking, and it's an observational study. So the Summer Foundation Scholarship has gone to the section looking at the chronic participants. So the aim specific to the Summer Foundation was to develop a normative database of arm movement during walking in healthy controls, to develop this gold standard ecologically valid and dynamic assessment of associated reactions using our criterion reference 3D motion analysis, and then to start trying to look at the test-retest reliability of this measure that we develop. So other um, more general aims were to look at concurrent validity. So this is where we're comparing the measure that we develop compared to all the other ones that I've talked about in the literature. So trying to replicate what we've seen in the literature and see how they compare. Look at further test-retest reliability of our measure compared to all the other ones. Um, so we look at participants at, one, at baseline and one week later in a chronic group that are less likely to change and try and see whether the scores are stable. And then to look at responsiveness. So in a subacute group of patients who we expect are probably more likely to change, we assess them at baseline and three months later and have a look whether the tools can pick up change and then try to work out what the main contributing impairments are. So these are the various methods that I've included in my study that I'll go through in a little bit more detail. 
So I guess technology, this was a quote by um, Steve Ballmer, who was a CEO of uh, Microsoft, and he said that technology empowers people to do what they want to do, it lets people be creative, it lets people be productive, and it lets people learn the things that they couldn't learn before. And so I guess that's what we're trying to do here is to try and find ways that we can sort of integrate low-cost innovative technologies into the clinical setting to try and help us learn the things that we couldn't learn before. I mean, this world is constantly evolving with technology and we get pretty much an updated phone and iPhone every year or every couple of years. And then in the clinical setting, we're using assessments that were sort of developed way back in the 50s. So we're trying to sort of see how, whether that technology can help us. So three-dimensional motion analysis. So this is the gold standard of evaluating movement disorders. It's the criterion reference for evaluating movement kinematics. Um, the problem with these systems are that they are costly. They're around $250,000. They take hours to perform, hours to process and analyse, and need obviously very specialist skills to perform these kinds of assessments. Um, so, you know, the good part is that sort of with that technology evolving, OptiTrack is a new alternative. And so OptiTrack was developed for movie animation, so like what was used to make the movie Avatar. So it's comparatively a lot more cost effective and user friendly. Um, Epworth have invested in uh, our research and have donated this system and it's currently set up, as you can see here, in the gym um, at Epworth. The good part about this is it means that we can conduct research in a real-life pragmatic hospital environment. There are obviously a lot of challenges with that as well, but it means that our findings are directly applicable to our patients. And so 3D motion analysis is that criterion reference based on which all the other um, assessments are going to be compared to. So this is one of our patients with the 68 reflective markers all over her body. Yes, I manually put every marker on her. And um, this is what then gets detected by the 13 cameras that are up around the room. So I'll just show you a video of her walking. She does have an AFO on in this picture and in the videos um, of the 3DMA she doesn't. But you can see here as she's walking, you can see she's got an associated reaction in her left arm. She's got a flexed elbow and a flexed wrist. And so here, these are the dots that we see with the participant walking. So that's what comes up on my screen when I'm testing her during the 3D motion analysis. And this then gets um, transformed through a pipeline that basically processes the data and gives us a skeleton. And that skeleton replicates the patient's exact walking function and her upper limb function during walking. So you can see that associated reaction in her left upper limb during walking. So this then gives us lots and lots of data. <laughs> so I'm not going to bore you too much and I'll try to really simplify this. But basically we get graphs of all of the joints of the body. So we talked about me developing that normative database of movement. So we're looking at, we looked at a group of 35 healthy controls and looked at the range of normal in terms of their arm swing or, you know, or the leg swing, but mostly looking at their arm. So you can see, well, it was kind of grey, but it looks a little bit greeny over here. But that thick band is that normative range, so that's the band of normal movement. The red line is the person's good arm and the green is their affected upper limb. So if we're talking the first graph about shoulder range of motion during walking, basically what that means is when the person's foot hits the ground, their arm is in extension, as they go through it flexes and as the leg comes off into swing again, it extends again. So if you look at their good arm, 
So it's a normal pattern of movement, but maybe it moves a little bit more than the other side than you would expect, which we do see often in our patients. And then if you look at the green one, you can see they sort of start in a more flexed position and then they flex, but it doesn't move as much. And I think we can see that here in the elbow flexion as well. You can see that normal pattern of sort of starts in a bit of flexion at the elbow as they go through it flexes more and then it extends a little bit. And in the patient's affected arm, you can see it starts in significantly more flexion and it sort of oscillates in a bit of flexion. So this may or may not be an associated reaction, but here we're having a look at comparing our patients to a normal arm movement and then assessing them at one point, assessing them at another and seeing, do they move closer to normal? So this is more maths than data. <laughs> So to simplify it, I don't know if any of you have heard of the gait profile score, and that's basically a single index measure that gives you a number in a numerical value that represents how abnormal someone's walking is. So this trace is a normal trace, the dotted line is a patient trace, and if we look at the area between the two curves there, it gives us a number of abnormality. And so if we sum that for all the joints of the lower limb using lots of statistical calculations, it gives us that value. And so recently there's been a few papers that have started to look at trying to evaluate that in the upper limb. It's still very preliminary. There's sort of a couple of papers in healthy controls and one in cerebral palsy and stroke. But basically we're trying to look at that value to try and create an abnormal, a score for abnormal arm movement during walking and apply it to associated reactions. And so we can assess a patient, get a number, the higher the number that tells us the more abnormal their arm is during walking, and then we assess them again and see, is it any better? So technology, as we said, it's sort of becoming the mainstream thing and it's constantly evolving. And I think if we think about video gaming, it's a perfect example of that. I mean, there was Pong and Pac-Man and then Mario Kart and you had to blow into the cartridges to make them work. And now, you know, you think about what children have in their living rooms. They have an Xbox, they have Wii balance boards, they have virtual reality games. And so, you know, in this, we're sort of trying to tap into that market of technology to see whether this low cost system can be used as a clinically feasible way for us to get more accurate assessments in the clinical setting. Um, you know, so the Microsoft Connect was developed for the Xbox. It has a 3D camera in it that records movement. That's how it senses what people are doing when they're playing video games. It's like $200, it's clearly very portable, and so it could be used very easily in the clinical setting. So this is a screenshot of our Kinect testing. So we've got a 2D camera, the skeleton in the middle, and then a depth sensing camera. Now these images may not look too striking, but I guess so far from some of the data that we're seeing, we're seeing that maybe these systems could sort of represent what we're getting in 3D motion analysis. So it's not going to be the criterion reference, but if it could give us a similar result, then it's obviously a lot more accurate than what we're currently doing in clinical practice. So surface electromyography, we talked about in those big, in those systematic review of those big sort of bulky testing um, stations with lots of wires and everything like that. So this measures muscle activity at a physiological level. So we've built this really little, um, sort of portable device that measures the muscle activity um, at a physiological level. We stick it onto the person's arm and then while they're walking, we get traces via a little Bluetooth device that sends traces to my computer and it gives us an indication of the abnormal muscle activity during walking. 
So this is just a standard 2D elbow. So we've kind of replicated that goniometer during walking. So basically we video the patients, we'll freeze frame it in their sort of peak of associated reaction and just give us a basic elbow angle. And then we're using that associated reaction rating scale, which was developed for sit to stand and trying to apply that during walking and seeing whether clinicians can accurately subjectively rate our patients um, in terms of the extent of their associated reaction. And then we've tried to replicate that stationary seated test that sort of came up again and again in the literature. Because if we really want to look at concurrent validity, we need to look at it compared to what is currently done in the literature, particularly based on our hypothesis that it really needs to reflect what happens when our patients are up and moving about. So you can see here the person has um, the surface electromyography on her arm and we've taped a goniometer to the side of her arm. So here she's performing a maximal grip contraction with her intact side and we're looking at what happens in her affected upper limb and as she squeezes it, you can see her elbow flexes And that then becomes even more significant when I then try to resist her elbow flexion on her good side. And you can see quite a dramatic change from resting position into sort of about 90 degrees of flexion at the elbow and an abduction at her shoulder. So this is the uh, surface EMG trace that we get. So that's the muscle like quiet and then that's the peak in the biceps as she sort of um, elicits the contraction and then it gives us that trace there that sort of shows us in the corner it sort of we set it that it sort of um, has a threshold and when it goes above that threshold it shows us there's an associated reaction and so we can see that there. So I have an outcome measure so what? <laughs> my mind says who cares but then my heart says you do stupid <laughs> and I guess this is the internal debate and dialogue that goes in my mind all the time but I guess the key is that we have an outcome measure and then what? So we create a dynamic, ecologically valid assessment using our criterion reference of 3D motion analysis. So whether it's that arm profile score that we use. And then we try and make it clinically feasible. We look at clinical utility. So maybe the Connect can help us do that. But the key is we have an outcome measure and then what? The then is then trying to work out what are our clinical impairments? What is the nature and the extent of the associated reactions? And what are the things that we think are the main contributing factors so that that can help guide our clinical decision making and the provision of therapeutic intervention. And so we've included a battery of impairment testing so that once we work out what our really good measure is, we try and look at the correlations between various impairments that we hypothesise could contribute and then look at our measure of associated reactions. So we've got a range of questionnaires. We look at the shortfalls efficacy scale, which is a fear of falling scale. The ARMA, which is an arm function activity measure scale that looks at the active and passive upper limb function. We look at the hospital anxiety and the depression scale and arm pain or discomfort visual analog scale. We look at spasticity in the hemiplegic upper limb and lower limb using the modified Tardu scale and the modified Ashworth scale. The strength of the upper limb look, uh, using handheld dynamometry. And then we've got a leg press force that sort of uses the load cell and the person pushes against the leg press and it gives us sort of an overall composite score of leg sort of force, the force produced by the person's leg. The short form Berg balance scale to look at their balance. And the 3D motion analysis gives us another number of really good measures um, in terms of the gait profile score. So that was that numerical value that looks at gait ability or gait skill. 
Um, lateral centre of mass displacement, so basically this looks at, looks at markers on the pelvis and then sees how much the trunk wobbles around, so that's a measure of trunk stability. And then width of base of support, which we all know is another indicator of stability during walking. So in terms of the testing procedures, we did the healthy control testing in 35 healthy controls to develop the normative data set. Um, this is the bit that we're talking about for the bit that's, that's been uh, funded by the Summer Foundation is looking at that chronic participants at baseline and then at one week later and seeing that the scores are potentially reliable. The concurrent validity is across all 60 patients looking at our measure compared to all those other measures. And then the last part is looking at that responsiveness in that subacute group of patients to seeing whether the measure can pick up change. So, so far for this grant, I've got ethics approval. We tested the 35 healthy controls and have developed the normative database. We've developed the patient testing protocol. I've recruited 22 of the 30 chronic participants and tested 15 of them at baseline and one week later. And I'm sort of busy sifting through and processing all that data. And this scholarship, importantly, was pretty perfect timing for me because it meant that I could really start getting this project up and running. I could start getting data that could give me preliminary results that we could then use as seeding funding, so information to then get funding from bigger external competitive grants. And so we've been fortunate to secure a number of grants and particularly more recently um, a couple that have on a bigger scale project looking at technology for assessment um, to measure impairments in the clinical setting. So in terms of the outcomes, you know, overall for the project, I guess it's, it's looking at sort of developing um, new assessment methods. So we're relating our assessments to function and we're trying to use innovative technology so that clinicians can use and keep up to date with the world around us and try and use cutting edge technology to help accurately assess associated reactions of the arm in our patients and therefore improve the care that patients receive both locally and maybe even internationally. So obviously we need a mode of dissemination for this information, so the aim is to create a web page where the information will be freely available and simply downloadable for clinicians. So it would be as simple as a clinician buying, say, the Connect or the EMG and then downloading the software programs that we could then sort of create a database of movement um, of, of results from our patients. Um, you know, the accessibility of some of these technologies means that it's equally applicable for people um, working in isolated and rural remote areas or in single private practice clinics and it, we could be apply this same sort of theories to other patient populations. It could be a really good educational resource for teaching, physios, OTs, doctors, students um, and I'll disseminate all of the work via my doctoral thesis in a hundred years time, um, publications in peer-reviewed journals, national and international conference presentations and I guess the key here is that you know we know there's no level one evidence in associated reactions at all. We don't know how to assess them, we don't know how to treat them but if we can have a really good measure we can work out what the impairments are and then we can do clinical studies to work out what is the best treatment paradigms for our patients and um, you know be able to say to clinicians this is what you need to treat and then this is how you need to treat it. Thank you. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
let it percolate and maybe something will come up. Just one thing, and I know you didn't touch on it because you probably haven't had time and you haven't started it, but in looking at the impairments that you're measuring, are you then going to apply, like do a regression analysis and then put it back to see what the, in, in looking at the, the outcome measure of the, say the 3D analysis, yep. and then look at each thing and then put it back and if there's a relationship you'll be able to say 50% of the time it's balanced. Yeah. And so I guess that's the key is that, you know, we can't really say causation. We can't no. say that spasticity causes it, but it would be very interesting as clinicians to know that, you know, in a large proportion of the patient, they did have spasticity. Or in fact, a lot of the time what we see clinically is they actually don't have spasticity. Yeah. And so then that sort of really tries to guide our assessment. And it always comes back to that clinicians need to be able to do a really good impairment assessment to go with your outcome measure of the associated reaction, which is exactly what we do in the lower limb. But we've got to kind of try and work out which, where the priorities lie, what do we actually need to focus our assessment on. And so that's what those, those analyses will aim to do. Um, so for this study, we're only looking at people with an associated reaction. Now, there's a big spectrum of those people, and some of the patients that we're testing, they might have a very mild one during walking. They might have a little bit more in the stationary task or vice versa. But at the moment, we're just applying this to people who actually have an associated reaction. Um, so I don't know if anyone here is from a private practice or anything, this is just a little plug. So we've just put in an ethics amendment to um, try and include patients from community settings. So it's a little bit more challenging with various hospitals because we have to go through the hospital ethics process. So at the moment, I'm just looking at um, community private practice um, where maybe the clinicians might want to come with their patient to be, have sort of this thorough assessment or they want, might be interested in getting the report for their patients. So if any of you have a patient who have an associated reaction during walking, either acute, uh, sorry, subacute or chronic, um, just let me know, that would be great. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. I'm like, it's so boring. Everything. No, you've covered everything. It's just so, <laughs> so complete. It's wonderful.